0: A DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, as an avid reader, I am constantly seeking to learn new things. I like to learn. I like to feed my head. I like to gain insight into the books and characters that fascinate me and uh, help me better appreciate the world around me. This is why I love The Great Courses Plus. It is a streaming learning service that offers in-depth, reliable information on just about anything that I'm interested in, from literature to history to science to psychology, even cooking or learning a new language. There is unlimited access to thousands of topics presented by renowned experts who are so passionate about what they teach. Best of all, it's user-friendly. You can watch or listen entirely on your own schedule from anywhere. Lately... I've been enjoying a course called Stories About Great Storytellers. You can imagine why. I like to talk to writers. I like to learn about writers, their lives, how they do the work, why they do the work, how the work came to be. Lately, I've been taking an in-depth look at Roald Dahl, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, James and the Giant Peach. You know that guy, right? I know that guy, but I didn't really know that guy until now. I explored some personal stories and watershed moments in his life that led him to writing the beloved works that made him famous. There is so much to discover on The Great Courses Plus. I love it. I know you're going to love it too. And to help you get started, they are offering my listeners a special limited time offer right now, a full month of unlimited access to their entire library for free. It's free. Sign up through my special URL right now and start enjoying your free month. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash other people. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash other PPL. thegreatcoursesplus.com slash other ppl you got it okay
1: you are not alone you have found other people you and i have a friend in common
0: every stupid thing that a writer could do i've done
1: i think it's really beautiful jake did what? west struggle you know it was incredible you know it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there
0: and now but here's your host, Brad Listy. Uh, just one person, Just, just one This is the Other People right. Podcast, <laughs> right. the Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy, and I'm in Los Angeles, California, rainy Los Angeles. I'm recording this in the midst of a uh, winter rain storm, and I'm very pleased to have Duke Haney back on the program for a second time. It's my buddy Duke. I've known him for a long time. He lives here in town. He has been an integral part of the NervousBreakdown.com, my online culture magazine and literary community, for uh, a decade, and at least a decade. I published his earlier essay collection called Subversia, and he is now celebrating the publication of an absolutely superb new essay collection called Death Valley Superstars, which is available now from Delancey Street Press. And uh, for those of you who are not familiar with Duke, He worked in the movie business for most of his adult life as an actor and a screenwriter. He acted in a lot of Roger Corman movies. He wrote one of the Friday the 13th 13th movies, I think part seven, if I'm not mistaken. And he then turned his attention to literature, published a great novel called Band for Life, the earlier essay collection Subversia, and now Death Valley Superstars. So... You know, Death Valley Superstars covers a lot of terrain, but the subtitle of the book is Occasionally Fatal Adventures in Filmland. So that tells you a little bit of something, a little bit of uh, what this thing is dealing with. Duke loves the movies. He loves film history. He is a a dogged researcher. He is incredibly well-read on this stuff. He's seen basically every movie. He's one of those people. And there's simply not a better tour guide through this terrain, through uh, old Hollywood, through uh, peripheral Hollywood or underground Hollywood. The highest of the heights, uh, you know, and the lowest of the lows. He kind of covers it from Marilyn Monroe to Jim Morrison to Charles Manson. and uh, and beyond and in places you wouldn't necessarily be familiar with or places you wouldn't necessarily expect but it's all riveting and it's just an excellent book i think it's one of the best books of its kind you know a lot of people take a swing at this and try to write about this place los angeles that i've lived in for the better part of 20 years and uh not many do it this well so i'm thrilled for him i think this is a uh, his best book. He just keeps getting better. Again, it is called Death Valley Superstars. Occasionally Fatal Adventures in Filmland. This is my
1: conversation with Duke Haney. I don't know. I've been this way since childhood, you know, since this second or third grade. I mean I I become interested in the subject and I just dive all the way in. Um You know, nobody has to guide me. You're obsessive. Yeah, I just go right to that shelf in the library and I just pour over everything and just become like a sponge. Um, And um, so there's no real starting point. I mean, the starting point nowadays is always going to be the Internet. Uh, You're going to look up what you can find about a person on the Internet. Um, And then uh, from there, uh, you try to figure out, you know, what more needs to be done. I mean, obviously there's, there's going to be uh, more because you're, not, you're only going to find so much on the Internet, uh, which contrary to, to, to fallacy does not contain all of human knowledge. Right. <laughs> um, uh, so, for example, um, with Steve Cochran, I knew that he had been involved in a lot of litigation And so that meant going down to the L.A. courthouse. uh, And that's sort of what started the the Sean Flynn piece, because I ran into this guy in the basement uh, that knew him. Uh, And we just sort of met by accident, and he didn't even tell me that he was talking about Sean Flynn. I just sort of out of the air guessed what he was talking about. It's serendipity. It was bizarre. It was really strange. But you're the person who
0: would know who Sean Flynn is and would know the details. Like really though of everybody I know, because I I mean, and people listening, I would guess that, uh, nine out of 10, if not more wouldn't know who
1: you're talking about. So who is Sean Flynn? Oh, well, Sean Flynn was, uh, the only son of Errol Flynn, the great swashbuckler of the thirties and forties. And, um, uh, Errol Flynn divorced Sean's mother, or actually, I guess she left him. Or uh, they had a very combative relationship. Uh, almost as soon as Sean was born, I think p- before Sean was born, and uh, so Sean was raised in Florida away from Errol Flynn. Um, and
0: uh, that's an easy father-son relationship. Nothing to
1: it. <laughs> it was it was difficult, but not in the sense that that they quarreled uh, because he saw him so seldom. Uh and uh when they did see each other, um, you know, Errol would would get hookers for Sean and that kind of thing. I mean <laughs> he was you know as a
0: loving father.
1: <laughs> and um so he died when Sean was uh eighteen, I think. Uh and um he flew back to LA for the funeral and um made a, a big impression on everybody who saw him there because his mother was, had been a movie star too. She's forgotten now, but was his mom? Lily Demita was her name. She's okay. French. Got it. And, um, she was kind of the Brigitte Bardot of the, uh, the twenties and maybe early thirties. And, um, and, um, so, you know, he, he, he looked like, you know, both his parents, he was very tall and athletic looking like his dad. And, he was blonde like his mother. And um, essentially, to truncate the story, that led to him getting a movie contract. And um, he wasn't really interested in acting. He was an adventurer uh, by nature, as was Errol. And um, he um, became a photojournalist, and he, he went to Vietnam to cover the war there and disappeared in Cambodia in 1970.
0: Never to be found.
1: His remains have never been found, though. Um, no one... I, I mean, I was thinking about this the other day in the book. I i was relating um, an American intelligence report that says he was taken prisoner by the Viet, and then, and the Viet Cong and then later transferred to the Khmer Rouge. But even that isn't really known for certain. It isn't really known for certain who took him. There was another photographer, Dana Stone, who was taken with him. And there were several other journalists who disappeared in Cambodia in, in the same region at the same time. Um, so they were killed, uh, somehow, um, by their captors, but no one knows the circumstances. There's speculation that they were beheaded, um, that they were shot. There's a story that whatever uh, happened,
0: it wasn't good. Yeah. Yeah. So we were talking about themes, um, before we got onto this, like what, (laughs) what are they? Like you started with one.
1: Well, let me let me first just talk about how the book came about, because you came to me again um, and said, let's do a book like this, a whole book like this. And at the time you had an imprint, you know, TMB books. And I thought, OK, because I wasn't getting anywhere with a novel. And um, and so I began immediately to think about, you know, who I would write about and and what I would write about. And I had some experiences uh, you know, for example, doing nude scenes in, in Roger Corman movies. And-
0: because you you were an actor for many yes, years. Yes,
1: I was. Yes, thank you. And um, uh, there's a piece in there about stalking Elizabeth McGovern.
0: <laughs> I just I, you know what I was sitting here when I, I got the book the other day and I reread that one, and because uh, you know like I've read some of these a while ago yeah. and it was just fun to revisit it. And thank you. To think of you in that theater lobby, like, <laughs> passing a no-
1: <laughs> fucking <laughs> creep. I know. Well, I like to write things that are embarrassing to myself because I I think a lot of people don't do that. Well,
0: but I also think there's something um, charmingly honest about admitting to foibles and weaknesses and we all have done it. Like if you live long enough, uh, you do embarrassing shit, like or at least stuff that's embarrassing in retrospect. I can think uh, like I still and I've talked about this before on this show. I can still torture myself over things I did in like high school. Oh, Uh, I'm still doing that too. I have a hard time forgiving myself and I'm just like, maybe I'm irreparably fucked. And then other times when I'm in like a more charitable mood, I'll be like, you know what? This is, this applies to all of us. This is part of being human. I think maybe there are some people with a spotless record, but I don't, you know, I sort of doubt it.
1: No such thing. Yeah.
0: So, but anyway, I just, I love uh, when people are uh, honest about that sort of thing. And um, you know, you had a crush and by the way, crushes, you know whether you're a man or a woman,
1: they can be sort of obsessive right that's the nature of it well, I make myself out to be a little more obsessive in the piece than I was i mean it wasn't like my every thought was about this this person um, and i was it it the crush I had i i I really trace sort of the roots of it. I think in the piece I talk about sort of, she was very like the kind of girls I went to high school with. that would have nothing to do with me. Um, And you went
0: to high school in Virginia. Virginia, Yeah. Yeah. A lot of preppies. Okay. But you were not.
1: I tried to be, I failed. Okay. Because they could all tell. I mean, they knew me anyway because I'd, I'd grown up there and, and they knew that I was from the wrong side of the tracks. And at a certain point I began to figure out that, Maybe part of the reason people didn't like me was because I wasn't dressing the right way. So I tried very hard to get the preppy look right because that was the big thing. And I just couldn't I could never quite afford the most expensive sweaters, you know, the most expensive shoes, the most expensive khakis. Khakis were crucial. <laughs> um, and. Um, I. They just all knew I, I had the, the smell of dirt on me, <laughs> and now here you
0: are wearing a John
1: Deere baseball hat. I've embraced my inner redneck, <laughs>
0: <laughs> so but wait, not politically. And you're, but you're, yeah. And you're from uh, what? Charlottesville area. I am from Charlottesville, and that's yeah. like that's that seems like a pretty affluent, very right. It's a university town. Yeah, and it's a lot of rich people, like what professors. And then because I don't even know what there's no businesses in town, is there? It's the university.
1: The university. Um I'm trying to think of other businesses. Uh,
0: maybe a few, but it's not like it some doesn't have like some industry in it.
1: I, I nothing comes to mind. Just be, um, like
0: beautiful rolling hills and like people with like acreage is what I'm picturing.
1: Blue Ridge Mountains in the background. Uh the university does employ an awful lot of people. And there's a little bit of that, you know, towny versus student mentality there or faculty mentality. And there's a lot of horse farms outside of the area. So you have a lot of uh, very money people living on the outskirts of Charlottesville. And um, so the public schools there were, were pretty good because you have so many academics in town and they would sit on the school board or their spouses would sit on the school board. And so um, we did have a, a very exclusive uh, private school there, St. Anne's Belfield, um, like Sam Shepard and Jessica Lang's kids went there. I happen to know because I'm still friends with my high school history teacher, and his and his wife w- worked at St. Anne's Bellfield for a oh, long time. Okay. Um, and um, um, but a lot of the wealthy people or you know, not super wealthy people, but well-off people. There would just rather than send their kids to St. Anne's Bellfield or some other prep school, they would. Just, you know, send their kids to public the high school because it was a good, you know, good school. Good and free. <laughs> well, that too. Yeah. But, you know, you have a lot of doctors, a lot of lawyers. There are a lot of people who go to the university and they, and, and, and they breeze in and they say, oh, this is a lovely town. Oh, I think that when I finish school, I'll just stay here. Right. And, um, and um, so it was, it was, I mean, I'm from a farming family. Um, you know, my dad had a farm, my, my grandparents on both sides have farms, my, my, um, in that same area, mm-hmm. right so, outside. So um, how many
0: generations does the, uh, Haney clan go back in that area? <laughs>
1: uh, I think to the 17th century. So we've been here a long time mm. yeah. from, uh, from England and, uh, Ireland, Scotland. Okay. I think I okay. haven't done one of those DNA tests.
0: Okay. Don't they'll take your data. My parents. Oh, really? Yeah. That's like one of the biggest data grabs ever. And like, they will find out all of your genetic predispositions. Like, I'm creeped out by it. I'm an a I'm strong advocate against. Mm. I'm, su- I'm very suspicious of anyone who's gathering data. And genetic data seems particularly rich uh, in terms of their ability to exploit it.
1: Well, we're all a mix of everything anyway. Right? I mean, you know, we all come from Africa originally. Yeah. So, um, I, you know, I've seen some of those... 60 minutes type reports where they'll have some they'll follow some person who's trying to look into their DNA and they'll say, you're from Cambodia. And the person will, <laughs> will beam and say, oh, I knew it. I knew it. And they'll say, but you're also Brazilian and you're also Antarctican. Right. right. <laughs> and the person's jaw drops. They're like, I'm all of that. Yeah. Right. <laughs>
0: It's always a, there's always a surprise or, f- you know, a surprise or two in uh, anybody's past, I would imagine. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called truth is the arrow. Mercy is the bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond available from Zando. Go get your copy right now,
1: wherever you buy books. So, um, this is turning into a Chinese box kind of conversation, which always happens with me. I know. I, I know, know. That's what I love about it. <laughs> Um, you, I'm going to go back to the themes thing. Yeah. Because, so well, you let's just establish that. Raised in, uh,
0: Virginia from a farming family, experienced like class division with like the preppy girls, mm-hmm. but then you moved off. You wanted to become an actor. Mm-hmm. You were a lover of film from a young age. This yeah. was, this was like your escape. And not only from, um, you know, whatever difficulties or whatever boredom your childhood might've presented to you, but it was also your aunt, like you love, the culture it was your way
1: in mm-hmm. because i didn't i didn't have anything else i mean it was you know uh, it was a terrible time for music um what, what era was the this? 70s yeah well, I, was, I grew up in the 70s when you were born <laughs> and um it was an awful time really for music unless you knew what you were doing and i didn't have any guidance uh i didn't have any older siblings to say oh that's nowheresville man you got to listen to this right um and um so I was bored really by pop music, I didn't like television. Um nobody in my family really read. Um so uh movies were it and fortunately it was a great time for movies. But I didn't know that at first. I I just went because it was there to do. And and then gradually it dawned on me. My god, this is
0: Movies are great, so what kind of movies were you seeing' Because the seventies like you know I think were the last uh, gold, like you know golden age they say of cinema when you had you know in American cinema kind of director driven films that w- would be very hard to make mm-hmm. right? at least the, i mean that's the, that's the tale that gets told
1: yeah, I think well, I think it's true um, you know the studio system. Um, of the golden age of Hollywood had been slowly collapsing since um, basically since the introduction of television um, and the theaters were forced, the, the studios were forced to sell off their theater chains, which were a big source of revenue for them. There's a big anti um, monopoly suit that the studios lost. And, um, and so by the early 60s, um, the, the, the old studio system was just in complete disarray. I mean, they're, you know, they were all selling off. I and mean, that's how Century City came to be, because 20th Century Fox, you know, had to get rid of its back lot and all that. And um, MGM, I mean, there were like auctions. It was like, you know, own Elizabeth Taylor's frock for $5, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and um, uh, so... They didn't really know what the public wanted anymore. I mean, they were still trying to make these these extravaganzas, which that was the fifty solution. We'll make really big movies for big screens and a lot of production value and uh, and, and in glorious color, um, and that will uh, bring audiences in. And then that was no longer working. Um, you know, big musicals like Paint Your Wagon, you know, were, were bombs. And so um, it was clear that there was a great generational divide and, and um, the studio's um, had thought, well, if we can just somehow reach that youth audience. And so uh, what seemed a natural solution to them was to, to hire young directors, young youngish directors um, in their late 20s and early 30s. Um, and so you have that, that brief period um, in which, um, studios are green lighting, you know, um, movies that they would, would never have done before and obviously have not done much since.
0: Well, like Easy Rider.
1: Well, that was a, yeah, that was a, a, a real watershed moment, I think for the, for the industry, because it was, I mean, that was sort of a, a real independent production, you know, and, um, Peter Fonda was a, a, a Corman alum, uh, alum like I am roger corman
0: well so was jack nicholson
1: yes and in fact i think they knew each other from um, from uh working for roger and um i mean roger was jack nicholson would say later was practically the only guy in town that would give jack nicholson a job Hmm. uh for a while there and roger i was among the first if not the first to make biker movies and so uh, I guess uh, Peter Fonda and or Dennis Hopper had this idea to kind of it was basically on the road on motorcycles basically in the sixties you know, um, Sal Paradise and and Dean Moriarty you know riding around America and um, and you know they filmed it in a very um, Gonzo kind of way, I mean although that's not a real commune that they visit and all that you know but it, but the movie has kind of a Gonzo feel about it and. Um, and of course, that movie was just a, a huge success. Probably
0: and probably relatively cheap to make.
1: Yes, I think so. I think so. So that seems like a good business model.
0: Yeah, I mean, and I think that to some extent, that's the business model that we're seeing repeated. Uh, maybe more so, like with Netflix or whatever. But it's like if you and I, I think this is the horror film business model where it's like make these cheap films, relatively cheap, like three to five million dollar films or whatever. And if one of them hits, it pays for everything and then some.
1: Well, I, I I wish that the studios would go back to that model, but but the model that they've embraced for a long time now is to make these huge special effects extravaganzas. Because that's the only thing people want to go into the theater for.
0: Everyone else is like, I'll just watch it on my phone. Yeah. Like, you know, I mean, I hate to say it, but like everybody's just watching at home on Netflix or I'll wait for it to come out on pay-per-view and they have a big TV and, you know, and I, I, that bums me out because I'm i don 't go to the movies like I used to, and I used to always go and I love the communal experience of mm-hmm. being in a dark room and like this kind of theater of the imagination and i don 't know it's always a better it 's always a better experience to see it in the theater
1: well i I did an interview recently um, where somebody commented the interviewer commented on um, is the first piece in the book in which I I mean the first paragraph in the book I described this theater in my hometown, the Paramount Theater, uh, which is a movie palace built in 1931 um, and this person asked me how much um, places like that contribute to the, the movie going experience um, he's, because this person lives in New Jersey and he said the only place to see movies around here is A multiplex, it looks like a Sam's Club, (laughs) and and I said a great deal. I think that that the venue contributes a great deal. It's the same with music, sure. Um, Yeah, you remember, you know, uh, uh, you know, I if you, I mean, I remember seeing, for example, Unwound, the band Unwound down at the Smell. I mean, it was the perfect place to see Unwound, you know, um, and with music, I mean, the more dilapidated the dilapidated the venue, the better. You know, with movies, I think maybe it's the opposite. Um, there's no grandeur about these places. And, um, yeah, what, like, what whatever happened to this notion that architecture should inspire
0: us? Now it's just like whatever's cheapest, you know, we can just throw it up in six months and start making money on it. You yeah. know, it's like it, it, you could say the same about like apartment complexes or whatever it is, but it's just, it's depressing.
1: Well, we're seeing that all over the place. In L.A. right now. I mean, I write about that a few times in the book. I write about the construction boom and gentrification. It's really horrifying, actually. It's happened in my neighborhood in Echo Park. Um, And um, I I don't understand people who who want to live in places like that. But I guess these are people who just grown up with with no sense of atmosphere at all. So they just move into these buildings with no atmosphere, no soul. You know, basically, it's a whole culture without soul and um uh so i i i told i said in this interview that i i I don't think it's any accident that um uh movies began to decline the supremacy of film as as a as an art form if you will began began to decline basically when the multiplex took over
0: but you but you were weaned on these golden age films
1: well i I got into those a little bit uh, more i I didn't not well 70s films yes i was weaned on those we had a revival house in my hometown um and they would show classic films and that kind of thing um and i saw some of those and the other thing about growing up when i did was that um uh old movies were shown uh, on late night television the late late show so Sometimes I would watch an old movie on the Late Late Show or like on a Saturday afternoon of like a football game got rained out. They go, we're not going to show you the seven-year rich, (laughs) which is probably how I saw that movie for the first time. So what's the movie? What's the
0: actor? What's the role that made you say to yourself, like, I want to do this. I want to be an actor.
1: Well, I know the moment that it it occurred when that thought occurred to me. Um, I write about this in a a different book, but um, I was watching... Um, they shoot horses don't they which is a movie from I think 1969 with Michael Saracen and Jane Fonda <clears throat> It's a movie where Jane Fonda basically proved to the world that she could act Did you see the documentary about Jane Fonda no, on I HBO It's excellent Really I loved it and yeah. I loved
0: her Yeah, like she was very honest Yeah It was a warts and all like a lot of times these things can kind of they, there's a like a strong whiff of vanity mm-hmm. uh, but I feel like she she was uh, honest in the process and it's just like, has lived a cool life in, in so many ways. Yeah. You know, I, I would a, agree with that. She's an
1: interesting person
0: uh, and a good person. I like her. I mean, I don't know. I, I came away with some love for her yeah. after watching the doc.
1: No, I, there's a lot to admire about her. I, I, and one thing that I think tends to be forgotten about her is, I mean, in the sixties, man, man, she was sexy. I mean, I I was I watched this movie, The Chase, with Marlon Brando. Robert Redford plays an escaped convict, not very convincingly, because I don't think there are any convicts that ever look like Robert Redford. <laughs> um, and I forgot, I can't remember, I think she plays his wife or girlfriend or something like that, but I was like... Like I was floored, I couldn't i you know, yeah, she's beautiful, but it's more than that, you know there's it, it, i mean sexiness is not just the thing of beauty, I mean that's the literal minded twenty first century way of looking at everything, everything is you know very it's like well, beauty,
0: of course, you know, right, but, but also like like a really like uh vibrant intelligence, and I don't know, I'm using like I have all this context now because of this documentary, and I sort of know how unhappy she was in the early days and how much like she was struggling. And then she gets into like activism and, uh, uh, I don't know, but I think that all, I think all of that contributes to the effect. There's a lot going on. It's more like, you know, more than meets the eye.
1: Yeah. I think, uh, I think that what I'm talking about has a lot to do with carriage and, and, uh, with voice and manner, you know? Yeah. And, um, so it was, they, what was it? They they shoot shoot horses, don't they? Which is a movie about, um, the great depression. It's about a dance marathon and it's very bleak. Sounds like a reality show. Well, it kind of was a bit like that. It was these people dance for 72 hours or a week or something, you know, with no sleep practically. And it was basically the last man standing was the whole thing of it. And um, it's based on a novel. I can't think of the name of the guy who wrote the novel. I, I read one that he wrote about Hollywood uh, a couple of years ago, and I can't even think of his name right now. He was from Georgia originally. It wasn't a terribly good novel. Um, but, um, you know, I was – i was if, if I had grown up ten years later, I probably would have been a goth. I mean, I was, like, always depressed, you know, and <laughs> <laughs> angry. I was <laughs> – Screaming all the time, at my parents. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> so what was it? But who was the
0: performance in that got you in this movie?
1: It was all of it. It um, was all. Okay. But I think uh, she was great in the movie. But it was just the milieu of it, you know. Because I could just identify with that heavy thing, and and I was sitting there watching it, and I thought, you know, I could do that. I could. I could be like that. And then I, and then I thought. You know, you couldn't be an actor. Are you crazy? And then I actually, I I got up and I went into the bathroom and I like stared at myself in the uh, in the in the medicine cabinet mirror for like you know like a good ten minutes. I was turning this way and that way and I was like, <laughs> well, you know, I think if I age the right way, <laughs> you know, how I'm old were you? How old were you? Fifteen. Fifteen. I was okay. like, because if I put on some weight and I got a haircut. <laughs> I was thinking about it purely in physical terms because I, because it just seemed to me that, that, you know, I would be hired or, or not hired on, on that basis. Not on whether I could act. I, I knew I could act because I had, I had done it, you know, I had already done some plays. I mean, I talk in the book about doing, I mean, I wrote a play in the fifth grade. I started on my own play uh, a couple of times, actually. <laughs> it's very like Wes Anderson. Right. Yeah, actually, there was a touch of that to it. I never thought about that before. But yeah, there was a bit of that.
0: And then when did you get the bug? You go to New York. You're like, I mean, if I'm going to be, if I I'm going to be an yeah. actor, I got to go to New York. Yep.
1: Well, originally, I, w- I couldn't decide if I would move to LA or New York. Um, and um, so I actually made a quick trip to LA. And I was like, Nope, not for me. Um, it just was a, a bad trip. Uh, and uh, where'd you go? well we i didn't know where the hell to go i was basically fucking this 27 year old woman and she got a job in california uh, as a newspaper woman um and some um small weekly um near santa cruz and what you were like what 18 i was 18 and and um we were doing a community theater production of you're a good man charlie brown together she was lucy i was charlie brown <laughs> i was just starting to do a little bit of that because i i you know while i was in high school um i i would, we didn't have a theater department anyway but even if we had i was like i wouldn't have gone near it i did not want to be a theater kid you know um but once i was out it was like okay now i can start to you know get my feet wet um, so was it like, did you have an awareness of like Stella Adler and method? Yeah, and- I did. You did actually. Yeah. Okay. Cause so again, you- I went to the library and I was like pulling books. I was walking around with an Uta Hagen book. Okay. Respect for acting. So this has always been there with you. Well, you mean the research thing? Yeah. Yeah. And it like was the- always like
0: that. But that's good though. You're an yeah. autodidact like yeah. you and you have some good instincts. Like at least you are on the right trail. Like you weren't, you know, studying with some like acting teacher and like. Tallahassee.
1: <laughs> no, no. I wanted, I thought I needed to get into a program, and I did get into the Neighborhood Playhouse, uh, which is a very famous theater run by, was originally run by Sanford Meisner. And actually, when I went in, when I went there to audition, Sanford Meisner walked through the room. He had a, um, his lar- he had uh, cancer of the throat, so his larynx was removed. So he spoke with one of those voice things, oh He was an acting teacher Was this that. in New York? Yeah, in okay. New York. So I auditioned. For the Neighborhood Playhouse, um, I guess just after I moved to New York, and um, I, I was accepted. Um, but I couldn't go because uh, because it was a full-time program and they for, forbade you from working um, in the evenings. Uh, Why? B- because they said you, it's a conservatory, they said you need to devote your your full... Well, they have scholarships or anything? M- well, I wasn't offered one. Yeah. But I, of course, you know, it was a great um pat on the back to be admitted i mean i knew that you know for, i mean i knew where everybody had studied where everybody had gone to school and i was like oh james or robert duvall went to the neighborhood playhouse you know
0: oh they did okay yeah, see i did. don't know all this stuff yeah see there's something sort of zelig like about you when it comes to the movie business because um you're in it for so long yeah and you were you know but both coasts, mm-hmm. so you yeah. have a strong familiarity with the New York scene, but also you've been in L.A. for a long time. so
1: <laughs> Too long.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, but you've had, you've had at least like brushes with so many famous actors and people in the movie business mm. over the years, like among whom Elizabeth McGovern, you were always like, what, not even six degrees of separation. And, and that's really the way it is in, in any, I don't know, maybe not any business, but certainly in the entertainment business. It's actually smaller... And more insular than i think maybe people on the outside might imagine
1: yeah well if you i say in the book if you if you have worked as an actor in new york or la that the six the fable six degrees of separation are usually one or none and so i did know a lot of people who knew her you know my manager john um knew an actor named todd who knew her and And he had met her once at a party. And I just kept saying, could you introduce me to her? (laughs) (laughs) But so, but like, what was
0: it like? Try to draw a parallel. Like Elizabeth McGovern at that time was similar to...
1: I don't think there's anybody nowadays that i i don't really follow actors anymore i used to know everything about everybody yeah me you too know, i don't know anything i don't i don't i just i don't care about anybody anymore you know is that a function of age or has it gotten worse it's gotten worse is that but isn't but it everyone really? always blames everything on age so uh, you know let people blame it on age i don't i don't, I don't care <laughs> well no
0: but i worry about that myself like i'm like i'm always like is it the is it the stuff or is it me and i just tweeted this i was like i think it's me it's got to be me. It can't be the stuff. People have been making art forever. Like actors are there's good actors. Well, that's
1: true. No, no, there are good actors. I'm not saying there aren't good actors. I just I think that that um uh, I the x factor is gone, I think in them. You know, there were used to be some mystery or mystique, uh some charisma. Your book
0: evokes that though. I feel like you're because cap- I mean the the subject matter of your book is uh there's nothing like the the actors and actresses that are featured are from you know decades past, so yeah. back when that was still in uh, in effect, yeah, or at least you know in effect for you and me and a lot of people. But um, but I write
1: about I, I write about a, n- a number of people who uh, you know like Mark Forchet was not really an actor, Sean Flynn was not really an actor. Well, um, and it's like
0: this nice mix, like because like one of the things I wanted to ask you is that you know w- what I appreciate is when you cover these sort of like, quote unquote, peripheral characters, mm-hmm. people of great talent who might never have hit mm-hmm. or just people who functioned, I think on the periphery, but did interesting work or there was a tra- you know, a tragic story to tell or whatever it is, but you're also covering, uh, Jim Morrison. Mm-hmm. There's also Hugh Hefner, yeah. Marilyn Monroe. So like, it's not like you're just sticking to one side of the aisle, but do you like, just to get back to our initial mm-hmm. conversation about theme, <laughs> like, is there a thematic unity that you feel binds all of these figures?
1: Well, I do. Um, now then we finally go back to the, the one of the original Chinese boxes. Um, I identified it very late in the book. I realized that uh, almost everybody that I, I write about in the book um, was uh, a rebel, uh, whether uh, quietly or, or violently. So um, I would define... Uh, uh, I mean, I could go by, through, through it case by case, but I mean, even someone like Elizabeth Taylor, um, I, I met her when I was a teenager, so that's why I wrote this little piece about That was the first one I actually wrote for the book when I, before I knew there was going to be a book. But I, but I mean, even she, I think, um, uh, was a rebel uh, in the sense that uh, the affairs that she had would have destroyed a career uh, before hers. Um, and she was very defiant. She was like, nope, I'm going to, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I'm going to marry who I want to marry. If, if I don't want to be with them anymore, I'm going to divorce them. I don't care what you think. And, um, Marilyn Monroe pushed the envelope in terms of sexuality. Um, that was
0: one of the things, cause I read that one too. Um, you know, just after getting the book this week, uh-huh. and it's like, who was it? Was it, uh, Billy Wilder who said Marilyn Monroe is the meanest
1: yeah, he like did say he, that. He said, like,
0: a, he, she's the meanest person, person. I ever met. I ever met. Yeah. She's so fascinating. I mean, it's kind of like the uh, most obvious thing in the world to say, because everyone seems to be fascinated with Marilyn Monroe. But mm. there's just so much there. And, like, what a heartbreaker uh, on so many levels.
1: <laughs> yeah, she's – well, one comment – I didn't put this into the piece, but one comment that I consistently – Read about her was people remarked on her. uh There was a uh, her duality, it was a very profound, there was a profound duality about her. Uh, an example um, the photographer Milton Green, who was her business partner, that was the guy that she started Marilyn Monroe Productions. You know, I write in the book about this whole secret uh, escaped to Connecticut, you know, and she was hidden in the trunk of a car and all that stuff that was engineered by Milton Green to get her away from 20th century Fox. And she went to New York and said, I'm starting my own production company. Um, I don't like the way that I'm being treated. I don't like the way I'm being marketed. Um, and, um, he said that, you know, when he first met her, he, uh, was just blown away by how angelic she seemed. He had never met any, he had met a lot of celebrities a lot of stars but she was like just unbelievably sweet and he said and he said but later i found out she could be completely the opposite that's freaky and um um, a a lot of people remarked about that 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 schism there was a kind of schism in her like two different people in her i think there were many more than two but she had she had a very rough childhood she did she exaggerated it a little bit but how um, so what was that well for example
0: um because she grew up in foster care, right? She
1: did, but but it was a little uh, – what happened was her her mother had a best friend. They were like these wild women of the 20s, um, you know, like flappers, I guess. And they both worked for um, Consolidated Film Industries. I think they both worked for Consolidated. They were both in the film industry, and they were both enamored of the movies. And um, And the mother was institutionalized. And um, and so her friend Grace Goddard took um, uh, be- became Marilyn's uh, legal guardian. Um, when Marilyn's mother had her, she placed her almost immediately in foster care. But that was not uncommon in those days for people to basically have a kid and they couldn't care for them. They would they would they would see them on weekends basically, and they would. So she Marilyn was living with uh, a couple out in ha- I think it was Hawthorne, California. She was ba-
0: she now was- the home of uh, SpaceX.
1: Oh, is that? I didn't know
0: that. That's where they build those rockets and stuff. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, the other thing that impressed itself upon me when I was reading that, and this kind of speaks to what you were talking about uh, with regard to your younger self, like age 15, looking at yourself in the mirror, Mm. is the degree to which Marilyn Monroe created herself. Mm -hmm. Visually, her name, Mm -hmm. there's an intensity there and a specificity and a... Uh, like, artistry. Like, I didn't quite put together. Like, she created, she constructed that character, mm-hmm. you know, that version of herself mm-hmm. in a really meticulous way. Like, yeah. it, and she had work done. Like, you know, not that that matters all that much, but, mm-hmm. I mean, her face, that makeup, her... Like, I think you talk about how she always looked at the, the negatives or the, the contact yeah, sheets. Yeah, every,
1: when... every shot on every contact sheet. So, so she, she would, would m- go over it with a loop... And she would, you know, later, later on, when she had power, she would destroy, she would destroy the negatives of shots that she didn't like. Okay. Well, cause that makes so much sense to me in retrospect, because what I always note
0: about Marilyn Monroe is that she never took a bad photograph. And part of it is that she's extraordinarily photogenic, mm-hmm. but the other part of it would seem to be that she exercised a lot of control over what got out into the public domain, which is seems smart to me.
1: She, that's true. But, um, if you, you know, Bert Stern, who did uh, the last sitting with her, um, uh, he saved um, the um, contact sheets, and I, I think the negatives too of the pictures that she destroyed. She would actually take a pen and she would stick the pen through the um, through the uh, the picture or the negative to to put poles in it so it couldn't be used. And then she would exit out with uh, and and I've seen some of the things that she rejected, and it's really odd because. Because you'll see two frames right next to each other, and she's cleared one, but she hasn't cleared the other, and the difference is slight. And she she hated it so much. It's like she me with my it. phone, I'm just like, <laughs> you can kind of see two chins. I got to get rid of this one. <laughs> oh, I'm a big one for that. Um, but uh, but but she was very photogenic. Um, uh, partly because she was such a a great student of the camera. I mean, she when she began modeling she would um, go back to the photographers after the session and she would ask to look at the contact sheets. So it started very early with her and she would go over it and she would and she would talk to the photographer about, you know, why doesn't what's what's you know, what doesn't work here? Why doesn't this shot work? And he'd say because you're not doing this and you're not you know, you're not turning your head here and you have to point your toes more to get that, you know, And so she, she just had that stuff down. That's what I mean. Most people don't realize that. Mm. Like
0: she put a lot of work into a lot of work it. knowing how to pose and like knowing like what, you know, and I think a lot of actors these days do this, like what's their best lighting and angles and what's their best side. I mean, I think some of that stuff has been around for a long time, but I don't know, just the degree of, uh, attention to detail.
1: Well, she did a lot of it on her own though. I think that's one thing that makes her distinct because, um, you know, Marlena Dietrich, for example, um, um, you know, von Sternberg was the person who figured out how to. Uh, Joseph von Sternberg figured out how to light her. You know, he and because they used to do that with with big stars. They would. You know, it was almost like a um, a manual. You know, like a set of instructions about how to photograph this person. You know, um, so that when a DP was assigned, you know, they were they were told. You know, you have to for Gable. You have to do this to like minimize the ears and you know and you know blah 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 blah. Sure, you know. yeah. And um, and so there were there were, you, you know, there were ways to to light Dietrich so that, you know, the cheekbones were emphasized and, you know, they made the eyes look a certain way. And she knew it. So later on, after, you know, the um, she she didn't have the, the, the studio there to kind of guide people, she would just go on the set and go, OK, I need a light here. I need one here. I need one here. And, um, you know, Monroe had that kind did, of, did thought. you have that when you were an actor, did you no, get to, the, did God, you get to no. the point
0: where you could, <laughs> but I mean, did you, did you know, did you have a sense of, Oh yeah, you, you do learn it. I mean, um, but you don't have the authority mm, to be like, Hey,
1: lightning. no, yeah, but it's something that, that you, you have to learn. Uh, I mean, in the old days, uh, you know, they, they brought you in, they did tests with you. Um, you know, um, and, and I think that you became aware of that stuff pretty quickly, um, you know, like this is what you have to do and, and, and this is what you should not do in order to look good at the camera. Um, you know, with me, I, I just, I had to look at myself and just sort of come to my own conclusions. I mean, nobody was talking to me much.
0: Well, you know, but I think like just, especially if you're, uh, somebody who achieves a certain level of celebrity and especially in this day and age with social media and camera phones and all of it you know i think most people have just given up on trying to control their public image uh, like literally like they the images that make their way into the public domain photos taken selfies and everything else but i remember reading an article it's either an interview or an article um featuring kristen wig the saturday night live mm-hmm. actor i'm a big i love her mm-hmm. I, she's yeah. so great you know such a like a i
1: gift. haven't seen her movies but i used to like her on the show
0: oh she's like I, there's i don't think there's been anybody as good as her on that show, maybe ever like, so like she could really do the, you know, she was a great actor, I think, mm-hmm. or is a great actor. Yeah. So, but I was reading and the, the part that uh, I'm recalling is that in the interview, I guess like they were, they pointed out that she like, she doesn't like to do selfies with fans. Mm-hmm. Like if you go to her Google images, like you're not going to find the litany of photos that you typically would with a celebrity of mm-hmm. her stature. Cause she's very reticent and very private. And part of me is like, I think that's smart. Yeah. Like she's like very nice, but she's like, yeah, I don't want to take the photo because you're going to put it up online. And like, I think if I were an actor, I might be the same way, you know. Otherwise, it's just, or maybe that's caring too much. Maybe that's too precious by half, and you should just let it go. Let take a selfie.
1: I don't know. I I I I think maybe um, going forward, a few people will begin to realize that that um, you know, one way maybe to enhance your value is to is to retain some mystery. I was just going to say, because Because,
0: nothing kills it faster than being on a billion Instagram feeds.
1: Yeah. I don't, I'm not curious about anybody anymore. I mean, I, that's not really true, but, but you know, people are out there just showing everything, uh, telling you everything. I mean, actually they don't tell you everything. I can think of a good example of this. There's a, a woman i know um i suspect she's recently broken up with her boyfriend but she has not made any official uh, announcement online um and uh she recently uh posted a photograph of herself undergoing a, a medical procedure uh so she posted that but she hasn't posted anything about her breakup uh and uh so uh, yeah it's it's interesting what how what kind of medical procedure she was getting stitches
0: Oh, okay Okay, I was thinking. Okay.
1: No, it, it was, she wasn't having her tubes tied <laughs> or anything. <laughs> I immediately went gynecological kind of in no, my mind. No, 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 nothing quite that bad. Okay. I, but uh, uh, or not, not that that's bad. But I mean, you know, not that that. Um, not that there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> not that there's anything wrong with that. No, not not that personal. But but nevertheless, it's you know, there's blood and you know, there's a gash and uh-huh. you see gloved hands stitching it up. You know, right. Uh, so. Uh, i i don 't know that i I would put something like that out there
0: i, I don 't know I think there 's a lot to be gained from being judicious if you 're a celebrity, and yet I think the pressure to be constantly out there is probably pretty intense, kind of similar to a book people i mean it's i mean it's di- differences of scale but it 's the same thing like do I go on social media do I tweet? a hundred times a day? Do I create an Instagram feed for my tour and all that stuff? And publishers are telling you to do it. And agents are telling you to do it. And I don't know, man,
1: it's a horrible thing. I, I mean, I, um, I, I told myself, um, at various points, uh, that I was not going to get out there and, you know, push this book. I was like, you know, when a book, just fuck it. When the book comes out, I don't give a shit if anybody buys it or not. I, I, I hate shilling, (laughs) Uh, I don't like shilling for others either. Um, I mean, I'll do it if I feel like it. I don't like that, that quid pro quo thing. Well, yeah. here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to show for you.
0: <laughs> and I, and I mean, with uh, the utmost sincerity, people mm. listening who have an interest in film and the history of film and have an interest in Hollywood and not just the Hollywood of the imagination or like the Hollywood of. Um, whatever you want to call it, high achievement or elite Hollywood, <laughs> you know, like you, this book uh, is an outstanding tour, uh, like Los Angeles too. Mm, I mean, there's a, yeah. there's a lot of different aspects. It's prismatic. It's not just one thing, mm. but um, that whole milieu and it's, uh, it's so good. And I feel like even though you're not necessarily inclined to go out and like stump for it and do a lot of the shilling, I feel like it's the kind of book that's going to spread by word of mouth. I hope so. I think uh, it will. I think people who, I mean, I don't know how many people out there who, who knows, you never know how, like what's the market size for any book. But, um, my instinct is that people are going to go, Oh, holy shit. You should read this.
1: It's really good. Well, I put, you know, as you said at the beginning, I, 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 it's true. I, 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 I pour myself into what I do. I mean, we were talking earlier about actors and I, you know, I, I was disparaging of, of today's crop. And it's because, really, I. There was an expression that you used once to me. Uh, <clears throat> not that you coined it, but you. But you. I remember you. You. you talk about talked about giving blood. And um, and that was the kind of actor I was. I gave blood, and those are the kind of actors I like. I like actors who give. You know, and that's one thing that makes Marilyn Monroe stand out. It's that she, you don't you don't see it because it was this whole light, frothy con- con things, but she was giving blood. It was a very difficult thing for her to get up and do what she did. She- and you, know, you know who she reminds me of, or
0: who I kind of compare her in my head to? And maybe I'm drawing on something I've read. Maybe it's maybe something you wrote, but uh, Charlie Chaplin.
1: Mm. Oh, God, yeah.
0: Like, she, to me, as a comedic creation and actor, like, the entire visual presentation, mm-hmm. how, just how comprehensive... Mm-hmm. Um, but also how indelible of a cultural imprint she made. Mm-hmm. Just like Chaplin. You know, it's mm-hmm. like iconic. You did the the mustache and the hat and the two big shoes or whatever. I don't, I'm sure there's a proper name for them. But, you know, like, it, like the tramp, the tramp. Yeah, that that creation. And then whatever we call, I don't know. Is there a name for what Marilyn Monroe became? The starlet or the blonde well, the, bombshell? The dumb with, blonde,
1: yeah. basically. That was the character that, you know, she became synonymous with. Um. Yeah, I would say at this point that she has supplanted Chaplin. Uh, I mean, there are people now who don't know who Chaplin is, which I just find it's just it just blows my mind. Yeah. Um, yeah. If, uh, I mean, if, and, if, and you and you say something like that, and people are like, "Well, it's before my time." <laughs> well, it's before my fucking time too. You know. Uh, I mean, I grew up knowing who. You know all these people were and they were from way before my time. I mean I could name all the presidents in order at the age of seven, you know. I mean it was like a party trick.
0: Well you're also from Charlottesville. You gotta
1: know that shit in Virginia, right? Well that was a big part of it really, I think growing up in Virginia, um uh because, you know, uh the uh, there were a lot of civil war battles there, there were revolutionary war battles there. Um and, uh, Virginia used to refer to itself as the mother of presidents because so many early presidents came from Virginia. And I grew up, um, very close to the, uh, residences of three of them. Um, Madison Monroe and Jefferson, Jefferson uh, Monticello was, you know, right up the hill. I could just look up and see it. No shit. Mm, I saw it all. The, I mean, yeah, I, well, I mean, when I first became aware of him, I was always looking for it like, where's Monticello? And, um,
0: and- I've been to Monticello a couple times. What do you uh, think? You know, I I think my my feelings are much more complicated now. Yeah, because because whole slavery thing. Yeah, I didn't know. Like when I went, I was like in junior high. Yeah. On like a field trip. Yeah. And then again, when I was just out of college, uh, and hiking the Appalachian Trail, Uh Um, and I took a break and met some friends in uh, Maryland, and I guess I wanted to go see Monticello. I've always been like sort of interested. I mean, interested in history and politics, Mm -hmm. and I love history and I love being in places that really make you feel it, especially somebody, uh, especially, you know, the further West you live, I think the harder it is to grasp maybe a real palpable sense of history in this country, or maybe that's not right, but you know what I'm saying? Like you go to New York and the buildings feel a little bit older and in LA, everything feels so evergreen. And in Virginia, DC, you get, a. I don't know, for me, at least I get a deeper sense of roots. Yeah. Um, and so I wanted to go back to Monticello cause it had impressed me when I was there. Uh, and it's, I mean, it's worth seeing. I think it's, you know, it's, it's definitely, uh, my views of Jefferson are a lot more complicated than they used to be.
1: Yeah. Mine too.
0: But, uh, he was, you know, you can't, ar- you, you can argue with a lot about him, but you can't argue that he he's a very bright guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and kind of a, uh, a polymath. He could do a lot. It wasn't oh, just God, poly- yeah. like it was architecture and inventions and, you know that house is kind of like a uh, there's like a Willy Wonka-ish quality yeah. to it somehow. Yeah. You know, in my memory anyway.
1: Well, he was a true product of the Enlightenment. I mean, all those, the, the, many of the founding fathers were, and um, that Jefferson was a polymath is probably, you know, one of the reasons I aspired to be something of a Renaissance man myself. You know, um, because I remember looking him up in the encyclopedia. You know, you know, for those of you uh, born in the year 2000, um, every uh, American family pretty much had a, a home encyclopedia. Before I had the, the world internet. book. Yeah. I, my, my grandparents had that. I liked that because it had color pictures. I yeah. had Collier's encyclopedia, which okay. only had black and white pictures. Ah, okay. So. But it did have color plates in the Renaissance section. Okay. So I became interested in the Renaissance as, as a child, partly because they had these, you know, these, these. These reproductions of paintings by by Da Vinci and Botticelli and so on, you know, um, and um, and so when I when I looked up Jefferson, it would say Thomas Jefferson was a U.S. president, diplomat, farmer, and you know, went, it was this long list, and I, I and I I think I even went to my mom. I was like, you know, well, how could you know? But he was just a president. How could he do all those other things? And she said, but people can do more than one thing. And I said they they can? <laughs> <laughs> well, Ben Franklin too. I yeah, mean, oh yeah. He's I, like another great example. I don't want to get
0: too nostalgic, but it is hard to look back and not be like, well, I think like people were smarter back then or something. And then you read um like the old I always I always say the old Civil War letters. You know, if you watch that like Ken Burns documentary and like those those narrations of Civil War letters, like people just wrote so beautifully. You're just like my God! Like yeah. what happened to like, our <laughs> literate
1: society? I know some eighteen-year-old soldier on the on the on the, uh, the you know, and like, I take my uh, leave of you <laughs> <laughs> as I am swept away by the winds. <laughs> but I mean, like it can get me choked
0: up. You're like, well, this is some beautiful writing. <laughs> I don't know, man. It's probably bullshit. I'm sure. I mean, there's a lot of emails these days that could probably, if you read them aloud with the right musical accompaniment, would do the same
1: thing. Not mine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I I have a one typo per sentence minimum uh, from all of my emails. That surprises me because you're so meticulous in the I know. work that you do. Like I know. nobody for
0: people listening, like Duke is. Like you're slow on prose, which you say in the book. Yeah, I do. Yeah, you know, you work very slowly and methodically, and just painstakingly. <laughs> how many drafts do each of your essays go through?
1: I don't even. I I can't even. How I how long on look.
0: average does one piece take? Do you have any? mean, can you ballpark well, it?
1: The longest ones. Um, the one about Mark Fischet took me about four months, I guess. Um, that's seventeen thousand words, and um, the one about Chris Jones probably uh, about the same length of time. But I also had a very. It was I. I, I was so broke at the time. I, I I had a roommate who was putting me through roommate hell. Doing what? Oh Jesus Christ! Um. Um. Uh, it was a whole thing i i i had to i was I, i'm not supposed to have a roommate and i've already been through an eviction drama with my oh right my landlords and so i i so i i went through a series of people you know uh living there and um and i would tell every one of them the, the you know they come around the landlords come around on tuesday morning and um um and um uh, you have to be out of here you know by nine o'clock and you know in the morning and um and they're all like, "Oh okay, and then of course they aren 't you know they just they just walk outside like you know the landlord's standing right there, and then I get this hammering on my door. who was that person you know so that was one aspect of it um and um just having guests over um and you you know the roommate having guests yeah, over and, you know, you're trying to write at late hours yeah <laughs> oh god and um that kind of thing and um uh yeah and and i was writing um trying to write and and just dealing with all that you know and i was also holding a a really awful job at the time so doing what i was uh, raising funds that specifically i think at the time i started that. well i with i started that piece the chris jones piece i started many times uh and then um and i thought i had made a proper start of it and then i i ended up just throwing it all away and starting from scratch uh i think toward the end of 2016 um and uh during the election i was on the phone actually uh raising money for democratic candidates and and for the clinton campaign
0: well that's a good thing to have done
1: right well not Maybe not if you're a Bernie Sanders person. But um, are you? Were you Bernie? I was not, for one reason only, and that was because um, I, I thought it was really critical for um, uh, for Democrats to consolidate behind Hillary Clinton. So, well, once she got the nomination, no, but in the California primary, I was really apprehensive that if she didn't win decisively, that. That there would be uh, a lot of contention about what had happened. which ha- ended up happening anyway. Yeah. I actually saw Bernie on the street here, on on uh, primary day. <laughs> did you really? Yeah. Like I randomly. Did. Yeah. Where was, was it? Uh, it was outside a, um, like a gelato shop, <laughs> on Sunset Boulevard. I huh. was actually aboard a city bus. I was going to my my horrible job, and um, there was a traffic jam, and um, and 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 I thought. Because uh, I knew I had heard, I'd been seeing online that day, it was like Bernie Sanders was seen feeding the ducks in Echo Park Lake and, they, and that kind of thing. <laughs> just and by I, himself. <laughs> yeah, no, attracting no, corrals wherever he uh, went, you know. And I thought, I bet you it's Bernie Sanders. And then we got a little bit closer, and there was like a, 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 a line of uh, limousines that were sort of just stopped in the middle of the street. Um, Thank you very much, sir. Limousines for Bernie. Yeah. Well, it was, I don't know who, who was in the other, but it was like a caravan yeah. of, of limos and, um, with flashing lights and he was, um, on the sidewalk and, uh, there was a great crowd of, of, uh, tattooed pierced people, uh, uh, taking pictures. And
0: yeah. Now that you say this, like, I'm trying to look back. Cause I, I always, I, I always say like, you know, I liked Bernie a lot in the beginning and I liked him on policy like a lot of the things that he was saying policy-wise.
1: With I a- want everything that he that he talks about. Right. But as a Hillary Clinton supporter said to me on the phone, she said, I want what Bernie is talking about. We all want what Bernie is talking about, but how are we going to get it?
0: Yeah. And, and But I felt uh, like it was important for somebody to just be unapologetic and bold and like start from there. And then we can negotiate backwards. Instead of being like, uh, you know, we can use this policy from the Heritage Foundation that, you know, Mitt Romney used. It's like, if you then you're negotiating with yourself. I think there was something about having him say it without apology that appealed. But now that you're talking about the California primary, which in 2016, that's late in the game. It's changing now, schedule-wise. California's going to be more towards the front, I think, in 2020. But mm. by the time you get to California in 2016, it, it was like, okay, guys, it's time for us to start... Like the, the the math is done, he can't win. Let's That rally was my thinking
1: her. about it, but I but again I I, I I voted for Hillary, and I could never have foreseen myself being a Hillary supporter a few years ago because I was very critical of the of the uh, of Bill Clinton's administration um because of its foreign policy i lived in the former yugoslavia and i saw firsthand all right you were
0: like you spent a lot of years there as an actor a lot of i time spent a there. year there yeah. yeah i mean
1: i actually more than a year if i look at the first movie i did there you're I did famous there. there i was famous there yeah I, I wouldn't be now of course you never know there could be some <laughs> there could be some diehards i don't think so <laughs> but uh yeah uh so i i was not a fan of of uh, air foreign policy there um and um uh but I, I realized later that I was confusing her with him. I was just sort of putting them together like people do. Listen, the Clintons are complicated. I always they
0: argue are. this. They're like, they're not. It's like if any deep dive into them, if you don't walk away with some pretty heavy mixed feelings, maybe you could say this about any politician. But man, Bill Clinton, especially uh, it's tricky. He's complicated,
1: yeah, but he's interesting <laughs> for that reason and um and um uh I mean he's the kind of person I could write about i mean you 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 know um, you're asking about themes and and you know i, I you know I, I i didn't write about people because of their artistry for the most part Marilyn Moreau's an exception i I do think she's a great artist i I think so um but um I just wrote about people who who have really interesting stories I think by doing that.
0: Like, I think by following your instincts and by knowing as much as you know, and by having spent time on the inside and the outside, you capture this place and the movie business better than just about anything I've ever read. Well, thank like, you. Like in all of its facets, because like the, the thing is, is what we see is all that surface level glitz. Obviously, they, we see what they want us to see. You know, it's the packet, the prepackaged junket interviews and the, all that bullshit. Mm. But there's, there's something and there's a very, I guess, well documented to some extent, underbelly. Um, there's another side of the tracks in Hollywood, and there is uh, a cost to uh, all of it, e- even great success. I mean, Marilyn Monroe is a fine example, you know. Yeah. Um, and then before I let you go, yeah. um, Jim Morrison, mm. uh, you know that piece and all that went into it. And I, I think we, we share. I mean, and we can well, talk I had about a
1: seance for Jim Morrison. So no, I know we have to wind things up here. No, so, but I yeah. mean,
0: no, we, I want to talk to you about it yeah, because yeah. Uh, we share a love of the doors. Um, yeah, I mean, you love the doors, right? Or you like, yeah, them?
1: yeah, I like I like the doors. I mean, I, I, I talk about my evolution with the doors, um, I, I feel like there, there's something they evoke Los Angeles for yes, me. Yes, that, that I, I mentioned that. Yeah, I, I talk about how it, it. It really, when I moved to LA, was when I could really, I could kind of understood the doors a bit better somehow. Right, right. It like it, it makes a lot. The doors
0: make a lot of sense once you're here. They like you, do. You're actually. in Venice Beach or you know whatever it is, but
1: even the sound of it though, it makes a little more sense here somehow. I don't, I don't know how to, I don't know how to articulate that. So what what was the genesis of the idea you're going to hold a séance? I remember like cuz I
0: remember back when you were like talking well, you're to me. You are supposed to be there. Yeah, right?
1: <laughs> you bailed. I don't yeah, <laughs> I can't remember what was going on. Oh, uh, uh, well, it was a whole thing. It was in the middle of the summer. I mean, I actually booked um the uh, uh well, okay. So here's the thing. Um and this gets into sort of, you know, how I was picking subject matter and all that stuff. Um uh I mean, there's some pieces I decided right away I'm going to write about this guy and this guy and this guy because um, I just knew they had really fascinating stories, like Sean Flynn's story. Not many people knew about it. Uh, and uh, Mark Frechetta's a risky point. Not many people know about that. Not many people know about Christopher Jones, which is a really fascinating story. I think that may be the best piece in the book, actually. Um, and then um, I was going to write about some personal experiences. I just thought the whole topic of L.A. and... The, the film business was just a, a very large umbrella. I could fit almost anything under under it, you know, so I could write about Lee Harvey Oswald from a film perspective, which I do, and I could, you know, I could put it into this book, you know. Um, and um, so the others, a lot of the other pieces I didn't have, I just thought I, I'll decide as I go forward, you know, I'll, I'll see sort of what comes to me. Um, I had wanted to write about um, this Playmate of the Month named Victoria Vetri, who was kind of a B movie star um, in the late '60s or early '70s, and she was you know, shot her husband and went to prison. And I, I thought that would be an interesting story, you know. And I, I tried to get in touch with her, and I couldn't get in touch with her. And I'd done all this research into Playboy history, and I thought, well, I'll just write about Hugh Hefner because I think I have sort of a, an angle on on that now, you know, from all my reading. Um, and so Jim Morrison. You know, I would never have thought about writing about him, except that um, I had f- uh, seen online uh, this um, really interesting photograph taken of him when he was a film student at UCLA. Um, he's a little overweight. He had short hair. He, you know, he's it's before Jim Morrison.
0: Yeah, he's like pudgy and sort yeah. of like baby faced. Yeah, yeah.
1: And it was a great photo. Otherwise, I don't know who took it, but it was. You know, it's it has kind of a. Uh, uh, um, uh, it almost looks art-directed. It's sort of blues, and, and there's a, a, a beer bottle kind of sitting on the on this.
0: That was the filter. That was the Instagram was it? No, <laughs>
1: Um Well, they did have filters back then. It's just that you didn't press a button, and yeah. voila, instant, right, right. instant, instant, instant filter. Um, and they were film students, after all, those people. So sure. you know, they all know about cameras and stuff like that. Um, so... I I just on a whim put it on Facebook and I was never popular on Facebook. So, you know, I mean, I could go on Facebook and say, I'm dying. And I, you know, (laughs) two likes. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Let me know. Let me know when you're, when it's over. Um, And then other people could just go on Facebook and just say, you know, like a single word, you know, you know, they could write baby food and they get like 200 likes. Yeah,
0: but you know what, man, I'd rather have it be the the former instead of the latter. Like, as much as it's nice to get that, that dopamine, it fu- it's got to fuck with you and give oh, you Oh no, a- the
1: whole thing, the whole experience. If we got into that, it's, it's a rabbit hole. We'll, you know, we'll, we'll, you know. <laughs> we'll
0: never come out. No, no,
1: I, it, <laughs> it, it, it is. It is a rabbit hole. And, and to talk about it is one also, but, um, and I'm undergoing a lot of it right now because I'm, I'm out there trying to, you know, push the book. Um, and, um, it's, it's just, I just, I just, oh my God, at the end of the day, I just, I just feel like I, I've been skinned alive. I think you what know? you
0: should do is like get some copies of the book. Think about people in the culture. I feel like there are people in the movie business who would love your book. People like, and, and like editors at like magazines like Esquire and Vanity Fair, like why are they not
1: publishing your stuff? Well, I don't know. I, I, I The most mysterious thing happened to me at one point. I don't even know if I should get into this um, uh, with you, but um, somebody from a huge agency wrote to me very mysteriously after the Chris Jones piece went alive. I don't know if there's any relationship to that. Um, and they, they said, uh, uh, they wrote to me and I misread the email. I thought they were talking about representation and then I didn't under, and when I, when I looked closer, it was the acquisitions department and they're asking me about representation. And I said, I don't have any representation. And then I never heard back. And I actually went to a former agent of mine. Um, and I, I, what,
0: to acquire the rights to like make, like
1: a- I don't know what, I don't, I mean, I thought the timing of, of it was really curious because that, that, uh, that piece had just gone off in the nervous breakdown a few days before. Um, and, um, and, and I just got this. I think, in fact, they wrote to you. You forwarded the message Maybe to me. Maybe that's what it will.
0: Okay. I, yeah, because I'm sort and, of like and, re- and recalling. You,
1: and, you know, and they wrote to you, in fact, and they said, I'm trying to get in touch with, and they, and they had done research on me. They, they had to it because they knew all my, my various names, D.R. or Duke or Daryl Haney. <laughs> or Durrell <laughs> Well, it was meant to be me pronounced Daryl, but spelled interestingly. Oh, okay. No, okay. it wasn't meant to be Durrell <laughs> But people kept mispronouncing it. They go Darrel Heaney. Because you wait,
0: like just so for people listening, uh, Duke used to like spell his name like D. What was it? D A
1: R E L. And then I spelled misspelled my last name H A E N Y. <laughs> I thought it was more interesting.
0: It is visually at least. Uh, <laughs> and people
1: kept saying Darrel Heaney. <laughs> so finally, it was I like know, fuck that. it. I'm going back to the original. Uh, I but think uh, but yes, this woman said I'm trying to get in touch with him, and then and then. I got the message, and I had just woken up, and I, I got all excited. and was like, oh, my God, somebody from, like, the biggest agency in the world wants to sign me. You know? And I wrote back, I don't have a representative. And then, like, a second later, I read the email, and I, and I thought, I just wrote the worst thing I could have written. It's the worst thing. It's like saying nobody cares, and nobody should care. So go away. <laughs> Do not investigate further. Feel free to steal from me, because nobody will protect me. I, I, you know, and I never heard from them again. I went to a former agent and I said, would you write to this person at blah, blah, blah agency and ask them try to find out what they were trying to contact me about. And I never heard from him back from him either. Who knows, man, somebody so, could have
0: been just like an intern or someone who was like, checking. but there
1: his- was some, they were looking, they were poking around into something. I don't know what it was. So Jim Morrison though,
0: you yeah. have this seance, you go to, well, the- I
1: didn't, I, I, the idea was just that I, 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 you know, I, I put this, this picture on Facebook and I got, I remember it was like 40 likes and, and that it, it it never happened to me before. <laughs>
0: I, it's electrifying. I,
1: I, it kind of was, you know. I mean, I I could literally go on there and go. I have just published a two hundred thousand word novel. <laughs> I have won. It has won the Pulitzer Prize, and I get like one like, you know. And and I thought, wow, people seem to really respond to Jim Morrison. Um, and I like Jim Morrison. I I I. You know, I'd seen that documentary made so by Tom DiCillo's documentary. I went, it was an acting class with Tom DiCillo. Oh, really? Frank Rosario. Was it yeah, People are Strange
0: described. or whatever? When You're Strange? Yeah, when You're
1: Strange, yeah. The, the old footage. That is the most extraordinary thing about that documentary. Yeah. That's what, you know, I showed it to a friend of mine. He's very snotty. He's like, well, it's very conventional, you know? And I said, I know, but look, I mean, they restored that footage. I yes. mean, look at how pristine that footage is.
0: It's like he's right there, you when, know? you when
1: he first walks out of that car at the beginning of the movie, it's my mon- blowing yeah i know you're, you're like oh it's oh this is i was like when i first saw it i was like oh fuck this it's gonna be some fucking guy walking around in a wig <laughs> yeah, right know? like a recreation yeah. and i'm a like oh my god it's actually him <laughs> right. you know and it's just beautiful footage yeah and and yeah. so much that the whole documentary is basically restored footage i mean yeah. they, they don't do any talking head interviews you know it's That's just great. johnny depp narrating his affected voice right. Um, <laughs> right but um but yeah so i uh that was really, you know, the thing that made me, you know, more of a fan. I mean, it was just seeing all that footage. I was like, my God, that this, this guy really had it, you know? Yeah, yeah. And uh, I don't care what anybody, so I know a lot of people hate him and, you know, fuck you all <laughs> because um, I... Yeah. He, you know, he was 27 when he died. I mean, nobody, you know, nobody
0: who's fully formed at that age.
1: That's exactly what I write in the book. Thank you. That's exactly what I write in the book. Did you,
0: I'm trying to think if you sent me the link or if I stumbled into it, you know, just on some internet excursion of my own, but there is a YouTube video where his father and sister are interviewed after his death. Yes. And it's touching. Yeah, because his dad has like who's like this military man. He's like yeah. an admiral in the navy or something. Yeah, right? he was an admiral. Yeah, so like this kind of like hard ass military guy. You can see why Jim Morrison might have had issues. You know how there might have been some tension between the two. Oh yeah, but like you know after Jim died, his dad like in in his grief sort of like has all this pride in like the accomplishments of the Doors and like made some concessions. Like he he achieved you know he achieved big things basically. It was my it's my recollection of it. Right or is he still sort of a hard ass about it? <laughs> no, well he's dead now. uh What his dad? Yeah, his, well his yeah, I know, guy. but I mean in this video, like, is, yeah. am, am I remembering it correctly? Oh
1: yes, you are. I think in fact that may have been done for the Tom the doc for the for the um the extras. Oh okay, I, I think maybe it was done for that. God man, it just it ri- kind of ripped my heart out because
0: it just made it real. It was like oh man, this is somebody's son. He looks he looks like he's tearing up a little bit. Yeah, and. Um, and um, why do I feel like I, I just, I never had like prior to that. I had never thought of Jim Morrison as like a guy with parents.
1: <laughs> you know? Oh, I think very much about his parents because I think that that had so much to do with how he turned out. I think, I think it was, it was difficult for him. I think um, to be the kind of person he was growing up in that kind of family, I think it was pretty, it was a Navy family. I think it was pretty rigid. Yeah. And I, I think that accounts for a lot of his rebellion. Sure. Um, but um, yeah, I just basically to go back to the piece. I just was thinking, you know, how can I write about him? Because maybe I should write about him if people like him this much. And and then I just had this thought that maybe I could rent his motel room and and at the Altasianika at the Altasianika motel and um, and hold a seance. And at first it was kind of a flippant idea, and then I began to think, no, I should really go for it. I should get a really hire a get a psychic medium you know real, one who's you know skilled is, well allegedly <laughs> um, but somebody that others have vouched for and um and it and so so much of the piece became about that It became about trying to find uh, a psychic and i just found that part of it really interesting because you you think you you know throw a rock at any tree and you know five you know psychics would fall out of it along with you know 10 astrologers and And so on, but it it proved to be surprisingly difficult to find somebody. Um and then ultimately, yeah, I did I did go down and and uh, don't tell
0: us the end. Yeah, yeah. You have to read the piece to find (laughs) out how it turns out. Uh Duke, it's uh it's great to see you in person, even though we both live in this you know, in this city we don't see each other enough. And uh congratulations on this book. It's uh it's outstanding. I love the way that it turned out and I'm interested to see what is it, a novel that you're
1: working on? I'm going to start a novel. I've done a little bit of, um, you know, um, in, investigatory kind of, you know, like I've tried to start it, but I, I had to put it aside to finish this book. And you think I,
0: you're ever going to write about Hollywood again in nonfiction form like I, this?
1: I, probably not in nonfiction form. I think I've, I've kind of had my say with this. I, yeah. You know, it would, ha- it would depend, you know, uh, I, who knows? Maybe one day there'll be a, a Death Valley Superstars 2, you know. Uh the sequel's never as good as the original. I agree with you. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think uh, I, I'd like to just go back to fiction. And I, and I did have a, a, an epiphany about a new novel, so I'd like to, I'd like to get to that. And that, that will have a little bit to do with Hollywood. Excellent. Well, congratulations. Well, thank you, Brad.
0: All right. That's Duke Haney. His new essay collection is called Death Valley Superstars. It is available from Delancey Street Press. Death Valley Superstars, Duke Haney. If you want to find him on Facebook, you can do that. I believe he is on Goodreads. You can also track him down on Twitter. His handle over there is at Subversia. The book, one more time, is called Death Valley Superstars. Go get your copy immediately. Thank you to The Great Courses Plus for sponsoring the show today. Don't forget to go get your free month of courses at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash otherppl thanks to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total as always for the theme song music thank you to the Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music if you would like to throw a few bucks in the hat and support the show you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod that makes a difference it's appreciated if you would like to write to me let me know what you think you can do that by emailing me at letters at otherppl.com don't forget that there is an official Other People app, and it's free. It's a free app, the Other People app. It's free. Go get it wherever you get your apps. So, it was good to talk to Duke. It's great to see him having this publication success. I saw this book be born. So I think I have a little extra excitement about it. I saw it come to be over the past six years. It's like a slow materializing process, and... uh I'm proud of him. This is a really good book. It's hard to write really good books, it takes a while, but uh, you know, Duke puts in the time. Next week on the program, I'm going to start update. wait. Next week on the program I have Brad Phillips. He's got a new book out called Essays and Fictions. We discuss whether or not it is uh, essays or fictions. He says it's fiction. Brad Phillips and I will be discussing all of that and more next week. It's out right now, that book, Essays and Fictions from Tyrant Books. I believe he's my first guest named Brad. Two Brads. Oh.